Welcome to the Roboticist Chronicles, an ARC Specialties podcast, where we get into the nuts and bolts of robots, automation, and the implications of an evolving machine workforce. Hello and welcome to the Market Scale Studios. I'm Tyler Kern. Joining me for another episode of the Roboticist Chronicles, Dan Alford, president and founder of ARC Specialties. Dan, good to talk to you today. Uh, thanks for having me in today. So, Dan, as a founder and president of a company dedicated to building robots, you've really seen firsthand the impact that robots can have in the world, just in creating efficiencies and uh, you know reducing redundancies and, and things like that. But not every situation and application is is right for them. And I think some people would find that interesting that you take a really measured approach to really finding the right application and finding the right way to use robots so that they aren't just collecting dust in the back of a factory somewhere. Uh, absolutely. You know, people have unrealistic uh, opinions on what robots can and can't do. You know, that's why this current level of fear in America, you know, the robots are going to take all the jobs. Uh, trust me, that's not the case. Uh, <laughs> this is unbelievably difficult, unbelievably challenging. And, and to your point, you know, one of the biggest uses of robots in America is dust collection. The projects fail, they put them in the back of the shop and they collect dust. And uh, so... As a roboticist, when I go into a company, frequently the first thing I have to do is convince people, no, robots aren't bad. Bad integrators are bad. Right, right. And I, I suppose people are going to find that to be a surprising thing, that you're going to say that robots aren't going to come and, and take over every job because I think people have seen videos and seen, I don't know, read things online that says a robot's going to come for your job one day. But um, you, you take kind of that, that measured approach to understanding exactly how they can come in and affect the situation and increase efficiency. And so we, we've talked in the past about how certain robots have come in and like a dishwasher, a washing machine, things along these lines have reduced labor, but in the end, people still have jobs. So it's, it, it's not going to be this end-all thing. Right. It, it, does anyone want to wash their clothes by hand? I don't think so. These are all just labor-saving devices. But as the tasks get more and more complicated, you know, washing clothes are relatively easy. But uh, doing something complex like assembling a transmission, that's tough. Mm. And uh, so I like to tell people there's still a place in the world for people. And that's what I've seen. So my job is to try to figure out which are the correct applications. And that's a constantly moving target because technology right. keeps getting better. And as sensors and computers get better, uh, then we can tackle more projects. But uh, we spend our lives looking for viable projects. And then even after we find something that's potentially viable, we have to go to my lab. And in the lab, uh, the reason we're in there is because we don't know whether it's going to work. Right. And if in the lab, we may determine, nope, you know, technology is not up to this task yet. You know, wait another year or something like that. So... It's a challenging industry. When I think of situations where robots maybe fit in the best or maybe some of the best applications, they are in areas and in, in jobs and industries where you're taking maybe a human out of a dangerous position, a, you know, out of harm's way, let's say, and putting a robot in, in that space. Are there applications where that has been the case that you've been a part of? Oh, absolutely. And and those I, I really like, you know, because yeah. there's no doubt in your mind that you're doing something good. If you're uh, getting a human away from something hot or dangerous or toxic, then uh, then you're doing a good thing. But that's not the only reason to uh, to do this. Mm -hmm. One of them is uh, efficiency. Uh, another one that you that might be a, a reason to do this stuff is 
is you're simply trying to be able to raise the level of quality beyond what a human can do. That's interesting. So you can find a level of precision. And I think some people would, would look at that and say, uh, nobody can do this job better than I can. But you're saying that there's a level of precision that robots can attain that, that humans maybe just aren't capable of. Uh, exactly. Uh, I would challenge you to uh, whittle me a contact lens as good <laughs> as a machine can do it. And sure. obviously you can't. Uh, it was, I don't know, it's 15 years ago. I was putting a machine in China and and I asked him, I said, why'd you buy this machine? You know, this, this machine's half a million dollars and you're paying welders $500. What's the point? And they said, to compete in a global economy, we must not have manually welded parts. They simply weren't up to the quality level. You know, so as, as long as it was a closed economy, they could get away with manual, but they wanted to go global. Is there something to be said also just for robots uh, not needing to, to eat at a certain point, not needing rest? And you, you don't have maybe some of the human factors with some of these robots that, that you know, that you have to worry about when you're, when you're talking about human beings? Oh, sure. That, I, I think the term is duty cycle. So, uh, <laughs> you know, out of every day, uh, how productive are you? I, you know, every minute? I don't think so. <laughs> Neither am I. And so the We're robot- not here to talk about me, Dan. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, uh, that's, that's one measure of robot productivity is how many minutes out of an hour is the robot working compared to a human being? It's a good question. Let's not compare it to me, though. Let's 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 keep me out of that, I suppose. Um, so there are a lot of good reasons and, and some other positive applications. What are some other areas and maybe specific examples of really positive applications of robots that you've seen over the years? Oh, um, I like I like the ones that break the rules. And so, for example, uh, in the rock bed industry, you know, since we're from Texas, I'm very familiar with it. In the rock bed industry, they apply hard facing, which is a hard alloy to the outside of the rock bit mm-hmm. so that it can survive as it wears and rubs against the rock as we're drilling oil wells. And then we apply a cobalt-based alloy to the bearings. And this this alloy allows the, the bearings to turn for a long period of time. And these were both manually welded operations. One of them was done with atomic hydrogen. And atomic hydrogen is an ancient process. They don't even teach it in college anymore. It uses uh, pure hydrogen gas and uh, over 300 volts of electricity. These are big numbers. This is Can the, I tell you that doesn't sound safe? I no, don't know no, anything, no. but it doesn't sound like a great process. Uh, no, no, no. It, it's absolutely not. You know, you have an explosive gas and lethal voltages. You know, what could go wrong? And so and that's how we were applying the hard facing to the outside of the rock bit. And then on the bearings, we were applying with oxyacetylene. Well, it, that's lovely. It uses a flame, but uh, it's certainly not taught in schools. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in order to automate this, we had to completely change the paradigm. So we switched over from oxyacetylene and atomic hydrogen to plasma. We went from rod feed to powder feed. We went from a iron matrix to a chrome nickel silicon boron matrix. And that, that was what, that's what facilitated this automation because the robot can't weld with a flame. It can't weld with atomic hydrogen. So uh, we did so well on it that every rock bit manufacturer is now running plasma rather than these older processes. So that, that was a fun one. It wasn't an obvious thing. Sometimes you got to change a rule. You just got to figure out which rule you're going to change. You got to know the rules before you can break them. That's what a music teacher taught me one time. You got to know all the rules and then you can break all of them however you want, but it's better to know them first. Indeed. Yeah. You, have to, you have to know the rules and you have to know alternatives. So that was a fun one. And then, uh, then there's a, we did an interesting one recently. We were welding up rockets, uh, you know, for space. So I, I guess that uh, 
our, our geographical uh, region now extends beyond the surface of the earth. But uh, now <laughs> we're not just a global company. Yeah. You're uh, <laughs> intergalactic. Intergalactic. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but the machines are still down here. But uh, this was an interesting one because uh, you, you really couldn't justify a robot based upon labor savings. Uh, but the reason the robots were necessary, uh, and, and also that it was hard to automate because these things are big, I, you mm -hmm. know, robots... Uh, rockets are kind of large. I don't know if you've noticed. That's what but, I've heard. Yeah. And so not a good automation candidate, but it was essential because, you know, uh, I think the, the space guys started that phrase, uh, failure is not an option. Sounds about right. Yeah. And so uh, robots were able to do this more repeatedly mm -hmm. and we were able to get, uh, you know, 100% acceptance rate. And so that was an interesting change. We chose robots not for any other reason other than humans couldn't do it. You and I have talked about a book that you recommended to me that I'm reading right now called Range by David Epstein. And in it, it's, it's really interesting just about um, how it's better to have general knowledge of a lot of things and not just focus and hone in on, on one thing. And I think when you talk about sometimes you got to break rules and sometimes you got to go off the book and that sort of thing, it's almost that type of thinking, right, of not just honing in on this one specific aspect of what you do and uh, about creating robots, but it's about drawing knowledge from lots of different places and drawing uh, inspiration from different things to be able to create something new. Absolutely. And I am, I'm truly blessed in that I get to work in every industry on every continent. And what that means is I get to observe a lot of tricks because every industry has some clever tricks on how they handle something, you know, be it, uh, you know, from making tamales to, to uh, handling plutonium. And so if you're if you're observant, you'll see some clever trick, and if you leave it in the back of your mind till later, and you're looking for patterns, and that's what humans do well, it's mm -hmm. pattern recognition. So that's right. you gotta find the similar pattern, even though it's in a wildly different geographic location, wildly different industry, wildly different material, and then reapply that solution to make you look smart, but in reality, you're just uh, stealing from one industry, taking to another. For all the good that robots do, obviously, there are times when maybe choosing a robot cannot be the right decision for a company. I wonder how you walk through the, the decision-making process with somebody who calls you in and says, hey, we want a robot to do this thing. How you make sure that this is really what they need at any given time. So what does that conversation look like? Depends on the customer. Mm -hmm. and uh, But if, if they're open to innovation, then that's the fun ones. And uh, one of my favorite examples was working with a company that's making uh, pipe racks. Okay, so you can imagine on a pipeline, you need thousands of pipe racks to support the pipe as it goes through plants and around uh, chemical plants and such. And they were having trouble with welders. And the welders, that was their biggest issue. That was their biggest headaches. They called me and said, hey, Dan, we want to replace some welders. I said, well, that's, that's fine. I said, but uh, we do something that we call Manufacturing Automation Audit Program, or MAP, just because it's kind of catchy. And so we, that, what that really means is we start at the uh, receiving dock, and I walk all the way through the plant, uh, through, the, through the whole process, painting, welding, whatever, drilling, tapping, cutting, until we get to the shipping dock. And I look for opportunities. And at this company, uh, before you weld, you have to cut. And there's this ancient technology called a magnetic template tracer. And uh, they have one of the last ones that was still running. I was impressed. 
So this thing's more like an artifact than something that should actually be used in the process. Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, it, back in the day, it was, it was uh, bleeding edge technologies, but that was the 20s, you know, and so. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, you know, it, to them, it wasn't broke. So mm -hmm. they weren't going to fix it. But I said, oh, I said, tell you what I can do. I said, if you let me put a robot on this job, we can do what the tracer is doing as well as cut the parts to length and can be full auto. Uh, initially, they're a bit skeptical, but they bought bought one. And uh, I, I guess the uh, the proof is they bought a second. So it's running pretty well. And I, it's what's funny is I have yet to automate the welding of these pipe racks. So by automating the cutting process, the welding... That maybe the issues they were having with the welding process uh, were solved at that point, or just less of an issue when you're doing the previous steps better. Oh, now you're—I have no idea. I can't read their minds, but That's a good uh, point. yeah, but but that that does bring us to a different point, which is, um, you know, you've heard garbage in, garbage out. Sure. No more so than with robots. If you have irregular parts, then mm. the robots have to have very sophisticated technologies called adaptive control to adapt to these part irregularities. This can be lasers. Lasers, that's, there's another 30 grand on top of your project. Uh, but if you have precise parts, then all of a sudden you don't need this expensive adaptive control or the programming associated with it. So a lot of times uh, I will actually look for cutting applications first in, in a factory, and that will allow us to make parts which lend themselves to automation downstream. That's really interesting. And now I'm kind of curious how many times you do that walkthrough process and end up solving a different problem than the one you were initially brought in to solve. Almost every time. Really? Now, that's if they're receptive. You yeah. know? And if a customer's not receptive, they say, no, damn it, we want you to fix this now. Then, you know, then I don't have that opportunity. But uh, it only makes sense to me that, that the guy that does robots is probably the better choice to pick the project than the guy that is having to hire an expert to do his robots. That's a good point. I would take your word for it if you told me I needed a podcast robot. Appreciate the trust. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, so I suppose like one of the things I always wonder about when it comes to bleeding edge technology, like what, what's going on right now with, with what you do with, with robotics and that sort of thing, that there are people that want to hop on this trend because it's the thing to do. It is the trend, you know, and they think and they think, I, I should have a robot. I see this across a lot of industries with, with data. People think, I would like some of that data, but they never have a good way of interpreting it or never a good way of organizing it and turning that into actionable insight. They just have data. And so I, I wonder if that's not the case with what you're doing. People think, I should have a robot. Uh, that's the thing to do. You know, this will improve my efficiencies. How do you have those conversations with people? Do, do those people exist, or am I just crazy? Oh, no, no, it's absolutely, you know, uh, all the cool guys have one, so I want one too. Right. Uh, I can think of one, and it, it, it was a very frustrating project for me because it was a, a success, but it was ultimately abandoned. Mm -hmm. And it was a company that wanted to weld uh, the big oil tanks. You've seen the big cylindrical tanks, several hundred feet in diameter. Right. Okay, obviously those can't be made in a factory. They are going to be made in the field. And so we put a lot of time and energy into this tank bot, we called it, and it would uh, uh, move around inside the tank, locate the weld seams, because once again, we, uh, they were too irregular for uh, us to weld them blind. So we had all the adaptive control, got all that working. We got the uh, automatic cleaning working to clean the parts off so you didn't have to pre-clean them. And then and the system worked great. I was delighted. But what the customer found was there wasn't enough savings 
to justify the increased level of technology. And so they didn't want, uh, they didn't want to hire the personnel that had the competence on robots. So interesting. Yeah, it's a frustrating job. You know, it's it's, it's hard for me to uh, to uh, win and fail simultaneously. So uh, no hard feelings, but uh, that one's not not running in the field now. It's one of the dust collectors. No, no, it's actually been repurposed. Okay, good. Yeah, good. that's that's one good thing about robots uh, is. They are, by definition, programmable multi-axis autonomous devices. What you put on the end of the arm is up to you and your integrator. You know, we'll have tool changers so one robot can cut, weld, and we even have a bartender. So, you know, you, you name the operation, the robot can do it. So, And so that was the good news, and that's why there are no hard feelings, you know, that we simply repurpose that robot. And I think taking robots into the field, that's something you and I will talk about at a later date. All right. That is the final frontier for robots. Because right now, uh, robots live in factories, mm -hmm. and, that, and that's where they do their work. But uh, we've had some successes uh, going taking robots out into the field, and there will be more and more of those. That'll be fascinating to, to watch in the future. I, I guess the, when I think about it, you're a guy that likes tackling challenges and likes fun projects, and, and you really find the joy in that. What types of projects have been brought to you that you've enjoyed working on and enjoyed solving the problem the most? Hmm. See, the problem is I like them all. Man. <laughs> uh, I, one that I really like, and because it, it's, it's what created the company to a large degree, is internal cladding of valves. Mm -hmm. So uh, all the oil that's left is so deep that uh, the threshold for what is considered sour is below detectable limits. So you've heard of sweet oil and sour oil. And so now we have to coat all these parts, these valves and pipes and such with a material other than steel because steel can no longer touch oil. And so it was many, many, many years ago, um, a customer asked me if I could could uh, develop a constant surface speed algorithm. It's relatively simple. Uh, if you know the equation for the circumference of a circle, you could do it. And that's what we did. We put that into a machine. and. That's very satisfying because we've ended up building probably six or seven hundred of these machines, and they're running all over the world. So uh, it's a job that humans are not well suited for unless you want to stick your arms, you know, three feet into a steel billet that's preheated to 500 degrees, and I don't think you do. I'd like to keep my arms. Okay, well, yeah, see, then, then you ought to be a fan of this one. Okay, yeah. And it's also extremely difficult for a human to reach into a small diameter bore and, and do useful work. Uh, five, six feet away from where they are. And so it's a great application for robots, for safety, for all, a lot of different reasons. And we've put these machines in India and China and all over wow. the place. So we've created a bunch of jobs all over the world. Uh, and if you want to even look at it from an environmental perspective, uh, if H2S or sour gas contacts steel, what can occur is something called hydrogen embrittlement. And the hydrogen embrittlement will cause catastrophic failure of the pipes under no load. That's how you get oil spills. That sounds bad. Right. And yeah. so this, this we're, you know, I'm also preventing oil spills. So we're creating jobs, taking people out of a hazardous environment. That was a good one. I like that one. Yeah, yeah. What, just as you look out at, at what's not being done right now, are there industries that you see that you think, oh, man, that's ripe for some innovation, for something, maybe there are problems that we could help solve, some inefficiencies we could help make more efficient. Do you see areas where you think, there aren't robots there now, but there could be in the future. Or maybe maybe you're in the beginning stages of developing them for, for a certain industry, and they're just not there yet. 
well, there's a new technology out called collaborative robots, and and what that does is allow robots to work in close proximity to human beings, and if they hit you, they don't kill you, which is a real advantage. And I like that. Yeah, and so uh, I, that's not as specific, possibly, as you asked for, but but you can see where it would open up possibilities where robots can work right side by side with people. Right now, we have to put them in cages because they can be dangerous. But if we could work side by side with people, and let's say that your job has one particularly onerous task. Uh, this one part is has to be in some kind of a solvent or an acid or something. We'll let the robot do that part. Mm -hmm. And then you do the balance of the operation. So. That, that's the new one for me right now is is the whole collaborative robot field. It's going to open up a lot of possibilities. I feel like uh, you told us a story about that beforehand, how you're going to give a talk and the, the collaborative robot's going to be on stage with you. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Or do you not want to give away the secrets? Oh, uh, uh, no. I, I, think, I think this podcast will be come out later. Okay, but, uh, okay good. Yeah, I'm, I'm speaking at the Welding Society in a couple of weeks. And, and as I said, the, uh, the primary difference between a traditional robot and a collaborative robot is safety. And so I'm going to ask for a volunteer from the audience, and I bought a T-shirt that says Crash Test Dummy. I'm going to have the volunteer put this on, and then I suspect no one will agree to it. And then uh, so I'm probably going to have to fill in, but I'm sure. going to demonstrate that the robot can hit a human, detect the load before any damage occurs. And so I'm probably going to be wearing the Crash Test Dummy shirt myself. <laughs> That's fantastic. Do you picture an application of that where maybe not all people will ever accept like a surgery to be done entirely by a robot, but could you see a collaborative robot working alongside a surgeon for specific tasks in, in surgery or something, something like that? Exactly. You know, there's some things that people do better and some people, some things that robots do better. Yeah. In fact, we're, we're starting to work in the medical field and it's been fascinating to see where the human does better. For example, uh, we need to know where a piece of the anatomy is before we work on it. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to know where the part is. You know, in in machining and in, in industry, industry you have a fixture that clamps the part. Well, people don't lend themselves to be clamped in fixtures, so we have to determine where that 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 part is. And rather than search uh, the entire operating room to figure out where the uh, the femur or whatever we're looking for is, we have the robot uh, have the robot go into what we call hand guide mode, and then the surgeon can take the robot, hand guide it, and and show the robot the perimeter, the searching perimeter. Right. And so, uh, how could I do that with a robot? I couldn't. So the surgeon would be the the right choice for determining the boundaries of the search pattern. But then the robot is much better at doing the search pattern than the human because we we space the points apart. And so this is exa you're exactly right. You got to let people do what they do best, and let robots do what they do best. That's another thing that uh, the book that we mentioned earlier, uh, Range, talks about is just uh, how um, when you give computers specific guidelines, specific this is what your task with doing, the ability to compute so many things per second, you know, it is able to to far surpass what a human can do. But broader picture, bigger picture thing human is actually going to be able to uh, think a little bit better in that term and then give the robot the parameters it needs to succeed. So that's a, that's an example maybe of how a collaborative robot succeeds in the everyday world, I suppose. All right. And, you know, when we're when we're probing, looking for points, we need to make these probe points exactly, you know, 1.2 millimeters apart, you know, pick a number. And uh, we can do that better. 
That's everyone's a specialist. You know, that kind of brings us back to the free market system. Whoever does something best deserves the job. It's true. It's true. So if it's a robot, it's a robot. It's a robot. It's a robot. It's going to be a robot sometimes. But uh, but people need you to come do a walkthrough of the uh, of the assembly process so they know uh, exactly where they need that robot. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of new technologies out there, and it's a whole lot of fun. It's it's this is a cool time to be in robotics because the sensor technology is advancing at a rapid rate. Uh, this whole idea of collaborative robots is really nothing but improved sensor technology because the robot has to detect when it's hit you, and so uh, that's what made collaborative robots possible is load sensors. And then we can capitalize on this load sensor stuff uh, to do operations which the robot needs to go to a force. Uh, you know, when you are doing work, sometimes you move your hands to a position and sometimes you move them to a force. And this is going to open up all sorts of possibilities. In fact, we're building a system right now which is doing polishing. And polishing, the parts are irregular. And so you can't move the part to a specific point in space, you have to move to a specific force. And so, once again, these collaborative robots can move to a force. If you want to apply 1.6 pounds of force, you can do that. Probably better than a human can. Do people have a good grasp at this point on the return on investment of robots, or is that still developing just as people understand, uh, hey, it's not just increased efficiency, it's also a safety thing. It's also a lot of different avenues that robots are beneficial. But do we have a holistic picture of that yet? No. Uh, there's websites that, that allow you to calculate return on investment, but they are woefully simplified. And uh, I can give you examples that break every rule. And so uh, it really has to be on a case-by-case -case basis. Is it a safety issue? Is it truly just a labor issue? Is it a quality issue? Um, and the biggest point is before the robot can ever make a dollar, before there, you'll see any return on investment, it has to make good parts in a timely manner. And so my big push is uh, you run your return on investment calculations, that's all well and good, but you need to make absolutely sure that the technology fits your shop, the technology is, uh, will work for your project, because the robots have to make parts. And I, I, I suppose just circling back to kind of almost where we started, if the robot, you know, takes a human out of harm's way, there's really no price you can put on that, I suppose. Oh, I, I think they do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I uh, yeah, that's, you know, what's a human life worth? Unfortunately, there is a dollar value, and it depends on which country you're in. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, that should be the goal is, is to keep people out of harm's way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dan, it's been a pleasure getting the chance to discuss this with you today, and... I'm excited to do it again in the future. Looking forward to it.